You're listening to The Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 71. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Elisa Zhang. She is the founder of Grow Your Wealthy Mindset. We talk about all kinds of financial considerations from starting as a resident to attending to planning for retirement. This is the best solution to burnout, making sure you understand your money. Enjoy the show. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I am so excited about this guest. This is Dr. Elisa Zhang. She is the founder of the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset podcast. And we've been in similar circles for a long time. So I'm very familiar with her story, but I want her to share her story with you. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. So yes, I'm a life and money coach. And I am certified through the Life Coach School, which you, know, you are as well. So of course, we've been in similar groups. Um, I'm also an ophthalmologist and arthroplastic surgeon. And so I started really getting into money and uh, finances and investing back during medical school. I actually did the MSTP program, the joint MD PhD program. So I had a longer training and, you know, a little bit of a different financial situation that I didn't have to take on huge loans from medical school. And I actually got someone of a stipend. I also got married really early. So I also had a husband who had income. Um, but really what happened was that in graduate school, I got... Uh, to a point where I really, so my PI was very micromanaging and I had this epiphany of like, I don't want to have a boss. I want to be my own boss. And I saw that as a possibility in medicine, right? There's lots of private practices where people are their own boss, but I also saw the need to just have a good sense of finances because if you're going to run a business, you got to learn how money operates. And so that's when I really started my financial education. And I guess fast forward to uh, now, and so during uh, 2020, actually in the beginning of 2020, I had kind of decided that I was going to leave my hospital job. I was taking 24-7 call uh, as the only acroplastic specialist at a level one trauma center. And there were residents and, you know, a lot of acroplastic surgeries really can uh, be scheduled a few days or even, you know, a week later. So it's not so terrible, but there were just circumstances that really I found a loss of autonomy. And so I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go ahead and start my own private practice, but then the pandemic hit. And that was a time where I was so thankful I hadn't started my own private practice that I didn't have a lease to pay or staff to take care of when patients weren't really being seen except for urgent or emergent reasons. So I ended up pivoting and found life coaching during that time of the pandemic and really just started with coaching myself and taking certification to learn the coaching tools better, but I really just love coaching other people. And so when it came down to it, I was like, you know, start my own private practice aquaplastic surgeon or start my own coaching business and find a part-time aquaplastics job. So that's what I ended up doing. And there's so many things to, to talk about there too. So tell me a little bit more about the MD PhD, you know, choice that you made. And I'm curious, how did that work out for you? And are you glad that you followed that path? Yeah. So one of the things was I, did not want to take off the loans to go to medical school. <laughs> it really came down to that. I went to Case Western Reserve University and I believe tuition was $47,000 a year for like just the tuition, right? And right. then they're still living expenses. So I remember going to my parents and being like, okay, if I go to medical school, you know, how much help can I get? 
And my mom's answer was, well, you're the oldest and we still have two more. (laughs) (laughs) And if we pay for your schooling, then they're going to expect getting paid for school. So you're really on your own for for, uh, medical school. And I still actually had some undergrad loans. I mean, they really helped me out for undergrad, but I did have about $17,000 in undergrad loans when I was done with my undergrad. So I had done a lot of research in undergrad and I knew that MSDB programs were fully funded. So I was like, well, if I'm going to go to medical school, I'm going to find it a fully funded way. And therefore I went through the MSDB program. I applied across the country and uh, in the end ended up at Case Western Reserve University, which is in Cleveland, which is actually my hometown. That's where I grew up. And Cleveland has a pretty low cost of living. So because the average time to finish an MD-PhD is eight years, a lot of MD-PhDs um, or MSDPs at Case actually do buy their own house back then. And remember, this is like before that 2008 housing crash and recession where basically Ouch. dogs, yeah, right? Like anyone could get a mortgage, right? Like a, a, your pet dog could get a mortgage. So yes, I, even though my husband, I mean, I was married, but when we got there, you know, my husband didn't have a job. In fact, he went back to school to get a master's in education and eventually uh, became a teacher and he still is a teacher, but we literally got a mortgage to buy. You actually bought the house for my parents. So they kind of gave us the money for the down payment and then got paid back the down payment when they sold the house. And we were able to get a mortgage with my $20,000 a year stipend. <laughs> yes. Um, and I wasn't the only one. Like I said, this was very common among the other MD PhDs in the program. But that's what really started me even just learning about finances was getting that mortgage because nowadays we really talk about just getting a third year fixed or 15 year fixed, which is the kind of more conservative route. But back then it was really the wild west when it came to mortgages and there were all these arms and interest only and and things like that. So I ended up with a 7-1 arm, which actually did make sense because with the MD PhD program being eight years and when we were buying the house, I was already in my second or third year. So the idea was, well, if we're going to sell it when I leave for residency, then I don't need a third year fix, right? I can get a, a lower interest rate with that 7-1 arm. And you're already starting to see like where your financial uh, literacy came from and you know the desire to learn some of these things based on your unique situation. But so take us through like the financial path. Of, so this is your financial path where you realize you're going to be there for a little while. So why not buy a house? And then, you know, really taking in consideration your situation as a whole and and how you made these financial choices. What would you start telling people who are, let's say, residents at the time? So, you know, let's take people through the path of as a resident to retirement. What would you suggest for these folks that are currently residents? What should they be doing? Yeah, so I know as a resident, we feel like we're not making money. But if you actually look at the average uh, income for American family, it's actually basically what a resident makes. So yes, we work probably a lot more hours than most people, but if you look at people who are at the lower income denomination, I mean, they're working two, three jobs, right? They are working 60, 80 hours a week. So it's not like, yes, we do work a lot of residents. I'm not trying to say that we don't, but there are other people in the United States who are working that much, making way less and finding a way to survive. And so that means that we should be able to survive as residents. And of course, you know, some people are married, some people have children. There can be things where it is a little bit more difficult, like paying for childcare. But as much as you can, you do want to try to put yourself in a financial situation where you're, if anything, not going into more debt and 
if possible, even actually starting to look toward the future. So your cash bracket is probably never going to be lower than when you're a resident or fellow and contributing to a Roth IRA so that the earlier you contribute, the more time that you have compound interest working on your side really can help you for the future. Also getting own occupation disability insurance. The best time to do that is in residency. You want to do it when you're healthy and you want to do it when you actually know what specialty you're in. So you don't want to do it as a medical student because as a medical student, you could go into any specialty. And so the rates that you would pay for disability insurance is much higher. But once you are a resident, even if you do a fellowship, basically at the time of your residency, that differentiates what kind of position you are. And that's the best time to get own occupation disability insurance. And you want to get private coverage for yourself because we're just, you know, in an age where the chances of you going to work for one employer and staying there is almost zero. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose it's possible, but I definitely wouldn't bank on it. So you it's want our only negotiating power right now. Right. So you want something that you can carry with you that you're going to keep with you such that if you do have any medical issues come up, you still have your policy and it's going to cover in case anything happens. Because, you know, as physicians, we see patients who get disabled and we have a lot of income to protect. In fact, we invest so much into ourselves, both time and money through medical school and residency in order to earn the income a physician can make. And so that's one of our greatest assets and we really need to protect that. It's a great time. You know, just like you mentioned about the disability, um, you know, what people don't realize is that when you get disability insurance, if you get disability as a doctor, then as long as you can get any job as a doctor, which could be like reading through charts and things like that, you know, if you don't get it based on your you know, specialty, which you don't know your specialty and you're actually in your specialty, then, you know, you're just basically going to have to take whatever job you can get that allows any kind of job doctor. So you really kind of end up being trapped and working for a job as a doctor, not your specialty that, you know, that's why it's so important. Yeah, it's and, and it's really important who you buy your disability insurance from, you really want to go to someone really knowledgeable who's going to go to all the big companies that do own occupation disability insurance. So I as an ophthalmologist, so I used to be a cataract surgeon, I now just do oculoplastics. But as a cataract surgeon, you need both hands and both feet to operate. You need your feet to operate the pedals, you need both hands to actually do the surgery. So if you lose any limb, you can't operate. And that's a large part of an ophthalmologist's income is that surgical income. So you want insurance that's going to cover, okay, you can't operate, but maybe you can still see patients in clinic, then you're going to get the difference in that income. Exactly. Um, and so, and I thought your point, especially about residents and their salary, you know, it looks low because we're thinking in comparison of what they are in the future, but it's absolutely true. If we look at the average income that, you know, American families have, you know, residents are making that. And now we could argue that if you go by hourly, our hourly salary is terrible, but, you know, the, the amount of money that they're getting a year is really comparable to what most people in the U.S. are getting. And so, you know, not forgetting that, that this that we are actually you know working for a livable wage is helpful. Yeah, and really we can still potentially live a very good life on a resident salary. So I did my residency in Chicago, so very high cost of living area. My husband actually stayed back in Cleveland uh, for his job, so we had two different households that we were paying for. So we actually kept the house that we had bought. I was staying uh, in a high rise apartment that was I want to say it was like sixteen hundred dollars for a studio. I mean, you know, definitely not cheap. Uh, I mean, it was a, a nice apartment complex. In fact, I think it was like two or three years old when I uh, moved in. And I was able to live on my resident 
uh, income, still contribute, max out my Roth IRA every year. My husband maxed out his Roth IRA uh, each year. And basically, we kind of like essentially had separate finances in the sense that his income kind of covered everything, uh, you know, the house and everything that uh, was left in Cleveland. And I was in Chicago and I was using my resident income to cover uh, everything for residency. And I still took an international vacation at least once a year. Nice. And there's something about you like, like what our money is for. I mean, it sounds like you have the option of like saving and packing it away and maybe occasionally using it for something where you can actually enjoy life. <laughs> What's not to like? Right. And it is about like spending money for your value, right? Like, so I really love travel. I really love international travel. And so that's what I spend my money on. But, you know, other people, they have different uh, things that they want. But, you know, in the end, like, you want to think about where money actually brings you value and not just kind of what perception is. And I think this comes up a lot more for attending positions, the idea that you're supposed to have like a doctor house and a doctor car. Well, you know, maybe you don't care about having a really fancy car. I mean, yeah, a fancy car is nice, but you just want something reliable that gets you from point A to point B. You know, I remember for my first attending car, you know, I actually went ahead and test drove, um, Audi and Mercedes-Benz and Lexus. And I ended up with a Honda Civic because I just couldn't justify spending that much more for like a little bit more quote luxury. And I got a Honda Civic that has leather seats where they heat up and, you know, that, I mean, has a, had a lot of bells and whistles compared to my previous car, that's for sure. <laughs> so it definitely felt like this huge step up, but yet it was much more of an affordable place to be at even though I could have afforded more of my attending salary, but that extra money that I wasn't spending on a car, now I could spend on you know, other things that actually brought me a lot more joy. Yeah, I kind of like this idea of like these incremental luxuries, you know, so you didn't have to go like hugely much, but it, it certainly was a step up the like the idea of incrementally increasing this. <laughs> no, so as a resident, so it sounds like, you know, paying attention to the money that you have, paying attention to your expenses, you know, thinking about that your housing situation and if buying house makes sense, you know, your Roth IRA, since it's the least amount of money you're making now, um, and your own occupation disability, uh, those are, you know, as the residence um, situation. Now, as we're going from residency to attendings, you know, what would be your suggestion in that transition? Yeah, so again, that gradually going into your new income, right? So when you become an attending, your income is going to be two, three, four times what it is when you're a resident. But you're also going to find your tax bill is also way higher. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and you're going to start finding that there's just, you know, other expenses that, that really come up and things that, you know, we do have a lot of delayed gratification that we kind of keep putting things aside during training. And now suddenly we're at a point where we can get quote, all the things. And I love the saying, you can afford anything, but you can't afford everything. Mm -hmm. So really look at, you know, what, what it is that you want to spend your money on. If you really are someone who absolutely loves cars, you know, maybe that is what you spend your money on, but maybe you don't buy such a, a big house. And, and one thing I will say about buying a house is that you really don't want to buy a house or a primary residence unless you know you're going to be there for the long haul. And in general, it's, that you're going to be living in that house for seven to 10 years. So with the MD PhD, like for me, it was like, well, we actually ended up, my husband uh, stayed in that house until 2016. So we were in it far more than 10 years. Uh, but uh, over 50% of people leave their first job. And 
as physicians, most of us have non-competes when we go somewhere. So if you're taking a job and the chances are that 50% chance that you're leaving, unless you really took a job to be in that location and you're definitely going to stay in that location, you want to seriously consider whether or not you want to actually buy. And you can rent. Like when I first took my attending, my first attending job in Virginia, I rented a four bedroom house with you know, hardwood floors and granite countertops. Like there are nice places that you can live that you don't necessarily have to buy. And I'm glad I did that because when I left that job about three years later, now I don't have to worry about like selling the house. You know, say, well, you know, real estate appreciates, but when you buy a house, often you can, you're, you may be doing with a doctor loan. So you're not really putting any kind of down payment down. Um, you may even have the seller cover your co uh, closing costs. The realtor and broker fees are paid by the seller. But when you're the seller now, you can expect to pay about 10% of what you sell the house at in closing fees, uh, realtor fees, broker fees. And there's probably going to be some amount of fixing up you have to do as well. So if you didn't put any down payment down and now you are selling three years later, if you're lucky, maybe your home appreciated the 10%, but often that's not the case. And it's even possible that you're selling for less than you bought the house for, depending on where you are. Yes. And oh, and these things that come up as uh, something happens to the property, like plumbing, like duct work, AC units, things like that. You know, I've, I've been recently hit with not one, but two five-figure bills in different properties. So, you know. Yeah, people forget how expensive it is to maintain a house. So really, you want to look at having somewhere between two to 4% of the cost of the house just towards maintenance each year. Think, you know, just like the roof could spring a leak, the AC could die, the furnace could die. You know, there are just expenses to owning that when you're renting becomes not your problem. Right. Now, that being said, is that as an attending, I know that you have invested in real estate. And so what was the the decision that you made to invest in real estate and what were you hoping to get from it? And what did you actually get from it? So actually the first time I invested in real estate, not including my primary residence was actually when I was a grad student. So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that really changed my mindset of, okay, being a business owner and being an investor, and that's how you build wealth. And Rich Dad, Poor Dad or Robert Kiyosaki is really into real estate. So I actually, I, he had something called I think it was the Real Estate Academy or Rich Dad Poor Dad Academy or something like that. So I actually like went all in, like spent $18,000 on my credit card to like buy these real estate courses. And then because I had $18,000 that I put on my credit card, I needed to make this money back, right? So I ended up busting my butt, doing a lot of things, ended up taking more real estate courses because the courses from Rich Dad Poor Dad Academy were actually not enough to get me to actually do real estate deals. Um, but in the end, ended up flipping two properties and doing some other deals, some that lost money, some that made money, partner with some other people. Um, but that's when I really started getting involved in real estate. And in the end, I did enough so that I made back all the money that I spent on real estate courses, as well as the money I lost. So then it was kind of break even the end, but I, like I learned so much in that process. Absolutely. And was that your goal? Was that, was it to make money or to learn something or was it like a challenge or what, what was the, uh, what was your reasoning for that? Oh, when I went into it, it was definitely <laughs> to make money. <laughs> yeah, it was. So like I said, it was during the um, time I was in grad school, it was towards the end of grad school that I was doing it. I finished my PhD a little off cycle. So I had the option of either going back to med school and kind of losing a lot of elective time 
or just taking the rest of the time off and going back in July uh, for, you know, when third year normally starts. So I took that time off and that's the time where I flipped the two houses and really did a lot of real estate. So I basically was doing real estate full time during that time. And, you know, luckily I was married to my husband, so he had income as a teacher. And so I didn't need, like, I didn't necessarily need to work to feed myself. Yes, and real estate has so many options. There's obviously like our primary residence, you know, which we've already talked about if you're going to be there for a long period of time. But, you know, the investing is a good way to offset some of your taxable income. And I know a lot of times if we're W-2 employed, um, there's not really many tax breaks for us. Real estate is something that does offer potentially the ability to make money, but also to offset some of our, you know, the high tax burden that we have. Um, and, you know, especially if you get bored, it's something fun to do. Yeah. And there are a lot, I mean, I know a lot of physician real estate investors who really love investing in real estate. And yes, there are definitely ways to uh, decrease your taxes through real estate. Um, the best or easiest way is through short-term rentals. There's something, I mean, people call it a short-term rental a loophole, but it's not really a loophole. It's the fact that a short-term rental is essentially a business. Um, it's a hospitality business. It's not looked at as straight real estate. It used to be, actually, I think before the 1980s, that you could really write off huge amounts of uh, real estate losses and paper losses, so not even real losses, to active income. And they kind of closed a lot of those things in the 1980s. Uh, but there are still kind of ways to to still make that happen. Right. And so real estate is one option for you to increase your income as an attending. Um, what about investing? What would you advise a uh, new attending about investing? Yeah, so what I really advise would be, if you can, to have about 30% of your gross income go towards building your wealth. And so that could be partially paying down your uh, education debt or investing in, you know, for retirement or investing in real estate or however uh, you want to do those investments. And there's some amount where you're going to have to invest in yourself, right? Like I said, before I started investing in real estate and buying properties, I invested in real estate courses. Now, I didn't recommend the first course I took, but I have spent since that time, you know, more money in real estate courses and some courses have been amazing. And that's how I was able to flip the house. This was actually doing a different real estate course where I really got the support I needed to actually get the job done. So there is some point where you want to invest yourself in order to expand, you know, what your skill set is and get you there faster. Right. I mean, for real estate, do you have to take your real estate course? No, you could read books, you could read blogs, you could listen to podcasts. Um, but if you have a mentor or someone who's, you know, kind of been there just before you and can help you out and do it, like you're going to go faster, right? And you're going to feel more confident. So it depends on what speed, what rate you want to do, what, you know, what you're interested in, but it's always great. Like even in medicine, right? We have mentors. We, um, when we're residents, we have the attendings who teach us. And even when we're attendings, we find mentors of people who are, been in practice longer than we have so that when we have a complicated case come up, we have someone to go to. So it's the same thing with real estate investing. You want to find other people who are kind of doing the same thing. So when something comes up, you can go to them and uh, go to people that ask for advice. And we've got great physician real estate investing communities as well. Oh, I completely agree. And, and I think that's where it comes to like, what are you going to do with your money? And, you know, when you invest in these courses and it gets you somewhere faster with less pain for yourself, I mean, example is, is cleaning your house. I mean, yes, I can clean my house, but wouldn't it be nice to hire someone else so I don't have to do it? Don't have to spend my time, which is worth more money than someone doing that would be. And this is, 
what courses offer us. This is what coaching offers us is getting somewhere faster. Yeah, it's so true because we as physicians really need to learn to work at our highest level, right? And even in the clinic, right? We don't want to be doing a job that you could pay someone 10 or $15 an hour to do because our time is worth way more than that. And this is something that we need to teach hospitals too, right? Like, you know, if having a scribe means we can see more patients and generate more income and that scribe is only $15 an hour, like get that scribe all day long, right? I completely agree. And I think really having an idea of like a very general initial estimate of what our value per hour is, is going to help us make really easy choices of like, of course, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, I'm worth much more than that time frame is. So first, you know, th this idea of hourly salary is, is something helpful for comparison purposes. But then I think to become wealthy, it's, you know, decoupling yourself from this idea of an hourly, hourly salary, whereas our worth then becomes what what we get our money from, which is the argument of like, well, you just did a gallbladder for, you know, 15 minutes, and I'm, I'm going to, you know, pay you an hourly salary for 15 minutes. And it's like, that is not 15 minute gallbladder. That was a four years of college and four years of medical school and six years of residency and all of my years of experience. Thank you very much. So I do deserve, you know, the value that I bring to that 15 minutes versus an hourly thing. So I think that you know, that's probably the biggest misconception I see about money is pairing our self with hourly thing and uh you know not recognizing that we should be paid for the value of what we offer not so much the hours that we work yeah that is so true and you're completely right when it comes to building wealth it's decoupling time and money it's not being paid per hour we're not paid per hour we're paid for the value that we bring and that value includes all of our experience and training i completely agree um so now as attendings um now if you've missed the window for the roth I know that there's still some potential for, um, you know, getting a Roth IRA and what would be the advantage of that? And how would you do that if you now become where you cannot actually meet the threshold of a Roth IRA? Yeah. So I don't know why they really put all these different rules in, but basically with the Roth IRA, once you get to a certain income limit, you can't directly contribute to a Roth IRA, but you can contribute to a traditional IRA and then do a backdoor conversion into a Roth IRA. And you can even ask, well, why do that? You could just put money in the traditional IRA. Well, so with 401ks, there's traditional 401ks or 403bs, and there's Roth 401ks and 403bs. And with traditional, you put pre-tax money in, it grows tax-free, and when it comes out, you pay taxes on it. With Roth, you put post-tax money in, it grows tax-free, and then when you take it out, you don't have to pay taxes on it. But when it comes to the IRA, if you put money in a traditional IRA and you are above a certain income limit, which we physicians generally are, then you can't actually tax deduct that money. So it's really post-tax money you're putting in. So then you don't want to pay taxes on it when it comes out. You want to put it into or do the backdoor Roth conversion so that it becomes, it's still post-tax money. So you're still not paying tax. So you've already paid taxes on it and you never taste the deduction, but now when you take the money out of the Roth IRA, it is tax-free and you don't pay taxes on it again. So you're avoiding kind of double taxation on that money. Right. And that thought that when we retire, we'll be making less. So why be taxed on money um, that we're, you know, we've already paid taxes on in the first place. Yeah. And sometimes I actually want to question, like, do you really think you'll actually be making less when you're quote in retirement? Right. Because we may actually be making more depending on what we're doing and what we've set up. And tax brackets may also go up, right? We're actually historically at a time of relatively low tax brackets, even though it seems really high 
at the top at being 37%, but the top has in the past been well above 50%. And when I say past, like not that long ago, just a few decades ago. Right. So let's say that we're now like getting closer to retirement. And so what would you advise the people who now, you know, have, when, when do you decide to retire, I guess, is a question. So what I like to talk to people about is creating financial freedom as soon as they can. And that doesn't mean that you retire once you have financial freedom or financial independence. It just that means that work is optional. So you get to work because you want to work, not because you have to work. And you may continue working as a full-time physician even when you get to the point of financial independence. And I know many physicians who are financially independent who do continue to work because they love working as a physician. But it might also mean that you decide that you want to you know, maybe work for a different kind of situation where maybe you're working for the underserved and you're not necessarily getting paid as much, but it doesn't matter because you've got income coming in from other places. Or you want to move to a different location and you can take a pay cut at that new location because you don't really need, and the income isn't as important. Or you cut back, you know, you go to working three days a week, two days a week, or you work locum so that, you know, you, you still get to practice medicine, but you also take long vacations. You go to Europe for three months a year. So you can design whatever kind of life looks like once you reach financial independence. And that doesn't necessarily mean retiring and stopping working as a physician, or maybe even working at something else, right? Maybe you've got some other passion that you want to explore. Like one of my passions is photography. And I've always kind of had it in the back of my head that, you know, eventually I might know, want to have a career in photography. Now, truthfully, I probably just like doing the photography for myself. And I don't really necessarily want to make a business of it. But, you know, that's just kind of one example. With my coaching, I am making a business of it. And when I retire from being a physician, which I'm not looking at in currently, uh, but, you know, maybe probably in the next 10 years, I would uh, move away from working as a physician, but I may continue on working as a coach. And, you may also have just whatever other passion. You may have, uh, you know, a nonprofit that you want to start that you want to really work at. So I like people to really rethink retirement because right now our lifespans can be so long. I mean, I've got, I saw a patient that was over 100 and I've got lots of patients in their 90s, right? So we have a really, a lot of life to live. And, you know, it's not like the, adage of, okay, 65, retire, and then and then what? Like, you know, then what you do? And there's even been studies that show kind of cognitive decline when people go from working to not working at all. So, but I really, you know, trust people, it's like, you know, why not go for financial freedom, financial independence, but not think about it as like just, oh, my goal is to retire and leave medicine. The goal is to create your ideal life so that you can do whatever you want to do. I love this idea of financial freedom and work as optional. I mean, because so many of us feel trapped in our job and that's where a lot of the stress comes from is feeling like, you know, we have to do these things, especially if you have large loans and things like that, or if you've extended yourself and you have heavy bills and things like that, you know, work can feel like a trap and money can feel, you know, harmful. But in your particular case, this idea of, you know, financial freedom is, is making work being optional means that now we can actually go to work because we want to and we enjoy it. Um, is, I mean, it's a, it's a great freeing feeling. Right. And then think about how much more powerful you are at the negotiation table when you know you can walk away and you don't need any of the money that, you know, I mean, you're just not tied to that job. Like you don't need to work. You can do whatever you want. That puts you in a much more powerful place to negotiate. And you can really think like, you know, what kind of patients do I want to see? What kind of procedures do I want to do? Maybe I 
you know, don't want to do these kind of procedures anymore. I just want to do this subset of procedures, or I only want to see patients of a certain demographic. Um, you know, like, I mean, like maybe you're a pediatrician and you just want to see babies and you don't want to see adolescents anymore. No, I'm not trying to be like ages or races when I say demographic, <laughs> but you know, I mean, there, there are like, you know, maybe you're an endocrinologist and you decide like, okay, I'm just going to focus on diabetes and I'm not going to see, you know, thyroid patients. Like, Right. And I mean, the ability to walk away really is like the most, the strongest negotiation position that we can be in. Um, and that's a really great sentiment as well. But I also like and kind of going back to something you mentioned before is, you know, using your money based on things that you value. And so like when you have money, then you could work for things that you actually want. And so you work for money and money gives you things that you want. And so it's another way to, um, you know, really appreciate your work because you get a lot out of it in that when you're clear what you're getting out of it, then you recognize you are actually getting a lot out of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of us went to medicine, not for the money, right? Because we want to help people and we want to serve. And so we can still do that. And unfortunately, corporate medicine and just, you know, regulations have kind of, you know, started to take away that joy from it. But when you step back and you're like, okay, I could leave at any time now, figure out how do you get your joy back in and how you're practicing medicine. Um, the other caveat I want to talk about is like, some people who embrace the FIRE movement, the financial independence, retire early, they kind of go at it like, okay, I just need to be as frugal as possible and invest, invest, invest so that I can get to retirement as, as soon as possible. And I have to admit, there was a little time where I was burnt out where that's kind of where I was going. And it was coaching that really got me out of that mindset of like, I mean, honestly, tomorrow's not guaranteed, right? So you really want to enjoy life now. You don't want to just be putting your nose to a grindstone for you know, some point where, you know, you can finally retire and just leave everything. And and then what, like, you know, life is still going to be 50, 50 at that point. And so really figuring out how to enjoy your current state while you are working towards getting that financial independence, that financial freedom so that you have more and more freedom and just making, I mean, just taking steps. So every day, every week, every year is, is better than the last. <laughs> And I know that I, I talked about this on a Latifah's um, episode, but that one post that I saw, like, all I have to do is sit and you know, live six years in this miserable job and then I can retire. I'm like, what a terrible plan. <laughs> yeah, there, there's life is too short to like spend any time being miserable, like find a way to, I mean, happiness is available to all of us at any time. Yes. I, you know, I love the idea of using money for freedom and your job for freedom and, you know, like really just making these choices to where we're living each day, but, you know, also kind of keeping an idea on the future as well. Um, and speaking of that, you know, what is the future hold for you? I know you mentioned that, um, you know, you have thought about private practice and you've also thought about part-time. What does the future look like for you? So right now I have an interesting situation. I'm working at a private practice that's physician owned and, you know, they treat me really well. I have two scribes and, you know, great staffing and yeah, like, I mean, it's it's just actually amazing. Um, I do fly to that job. Um, it's you know because I choose to continue to live in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and so you know, so far so good. I'm happy with the work situation there, and it's really per diem, so I can take off time and take off more vacation when I want, and um, and still get to operate, see patients, and you know, practice medicine. So you know, for me right now. Uh, you know, I, I don't know when 
at what point I'll decide not to practice medicine, but it's not kind of in the, the near future. I'm growing my coaching business, which I really also just enjoy. And, you know, it's funny. I think there there's a, a little bit of type A among, you know, all physicians, right? So even among physician coaches of like, oh, I should be growing my business bigger, faster. Like, why aren't I, you know, making million dollars a year, five million dollars? I don't know. Like, um, but, you know, I keep having to remind myself, like, this is supposed to be fun. <laughs> this is supposed to be fun (laughs) right like right so so I don't want to burn out on being a a physician coach because you know I think that there are some physician coaches who who kind of start to you know and even successful physician coaches who at some time don't love their business anymore and I don't want to kind of fall into that fallacy yes that's the downside of leaving the job that you have or expanding your job is you take yourself with you (laughs) exactly (laughs) Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to miss this point either. I mean, like you mentioned, like this is completely normal, but I don't know if people caught this. You're like, you don't have to live where you work. You're like, I decide that I'm going to fly there and I decide that I'm going to work when I want and I'm going to decide that I do this. And I mean, I think those are really conscious choices where I'm sure if I'm imagining is that you just decided I'm going to live life on my terms. Um, And I think that, you know, all of your lessons of you can actually do all this, like you can set yourself up to where you can have the job that you want so that you don't have to burn out. Um, and so, I mean, those are really amazing choices of it that led you to this job here. Yeah. And I think part of it is also just like meeting more and more physicians who are, you know, not doing it with the traditional way and just realizing like, yeah, like there are lots of options. There are, are lots of physicians where, I mean, I, you know, people kind of hear my situation and think it's locums. And it's actually not like I'm a W2 employee, like I have a 401k, and they actually, you know, match part of, you know, what I put in. Um, But there are other people who do locums. And there are people who will actually negotiate with different hospitals or clinics directly and get much higher uh, compensation than what locum companies would, um, would be offering. I mean, I talked to this one physician where, you know, she basically you know, a hospital reached out and said, you know, could you work this shift? And she's like, well, if you want me to work that shift, you're going to need to pay me, you know, basically four times what they were offering. And they're like, there's no way we're doing that. And then, you know, a day or two later, okay, here's the contract for time, you know, for what she asked for, because, you know, medicine doesn't run without us, right? I mean, unfortunately, there have been more and more legislation to try to make it so that medicine can run without us. But in the end, a hospital can't run without physicians. Right. I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I know the landscape is kind of rapidly changing, but I would agree um, right now they can't. So now on your um, podcast and on your website, I know that you talk about this, this financial independence workbook. So take us through what, you know, what people can find on your website and what you have to offer. Um, what What do people find when they find you? Yeah. So I have the financial independence workbook and what it includes is a Excel sheet, as well as uh, a PDF that really steps you through how to actually do the calculations of figuring out how much you spend and how much assets you have and what kind of cash flow you can get from the assets. So such that when you get to the point where your cash flow can cover the, the cash flow from your assets can cover your spending and expenses, then that's where you get to financial independence or financial freedom. And I even outline kind of different levels of financial independence. So like survival, where basically like you could live indefinitely, but you're not necessarily taking vacations to Europe um, to financial independence, where you're 
continue your current lifestyle to what some people even call fat fire, where maybe you're you know, taking up hobbies that are quite pricey, like um, horseback riding or you know driving um, uh, race cars or <laughs> you know what have you. I've never heard of fat fire. That's that's hilarious. <laughs> Well, that's really fantastic. I mean, what a wonderful resource that you have. And where do they find it? It's at www.growyourwealthymindset.com. You can look for the financial independence workbook. Um, on the homepage, it, there's a link that points to it. Um, you can also see more information about the podcast. If you want to reach out to me, there's information on how to do that as well. Well, I think that's fantastic. You've covered so much. And I think that so many people are going to benefit from this. So Dr. Elisa Zhang, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.